This is quantization. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Art and Inclusion from Quantization Podcast. I am Kava Ashurnia, and in this episode, we are talking to Michelangelo Severnini, Italian filmmaker, musician, and radio producer. Colin Clark is hosting this episode. Nine years after the fall of Gaddafi's regime in Libya, as the consequence of the wake of the Arab Spring protest, Libya is still dealing with civil war. The country is divided into different parts, and regional and global players are influencing the crisis. Libya is dealing with many difficulties, but people of the region are suffering the most. The Libyan geological situation is a spot for a more complicated story, which is the massive number of African migrants trapped in Libya. They once moved there hoping for a better income in a more stable Libyan economy or as a departure port to the European countries. Many of them are facing severe difficulties, including being tortured and dealing with smugglers and criminals. In this episode, we invited Michelangelo to talk about the situation. He's working on an ongoing project for over two years now and documenting these African migrants' pains and agonies. He frequently traveled to the region to complete his documentary, Exodus, Escape from Libya, and he is in close contact with many of those migrants. He's sharing his personal experience with this humanitarian crisis. He discussed the tools and somehow unique approach he used telling the story. We also asked him about his artistic journey up to today and his life experience in various countries, including Turkey, as one of the players in the Libyan crisis. What was the motivation that prompted him to start this project and what are the next steps? This is episode 13, Art and Inclusion, Volume 2, Trapped in Libya. Welcome Colin and Michelangelo. Please start with your introduction. Hi, I'm Colin Clark. I'm the Associate Director of the Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University in Toronto. And these days I'm continuing to hide out in my basement uh, of my house, my basement studio, and to work. And um, I'm lucky enough to have been invited by Cave to co-host this series on the intersection between inclusion and creativity in the art. And let's see, I'm an artist myself. Um, I do uh, experimental and computational video artwork, um, particularly looking at um, modes of temporality and and, uh, perception um, in regards to video and and how technology modulates those kinds of things. And Michelangelo, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk with you again, Um, but maybe you could start by introducing yourself and telling us all what what you're working on these days. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here with you. And uh, so I've been a um, filmmaker since uh, 15 years now. 
I started at the beginning, especially making documentaries for the Italian TV. Uh, this happened for a few years, but uh, afterwards I uh, prefer continue as an independent filmmaker. And uh, exactly in 2008, uh, this meant for me to leave my country also. I spent almost 10 years abroad. Uh, always uh, making uh, uh, independent documentaries. At the same time, I like to say that I am uh, also a musician, so I try to combine uh, both uh, uh, things. Uh, so I try to be busy with uh, these two passions of mine. And um, and nowadays, or I can say since a couple of years, I'm focusing on the situation in Libya after I moved back to my country. Are you back at home then, or where are you right now? I am in Palermo, which is in Sicily, so just in front of Africa. Even though we don't go to Europe, we'll go back to our country because I think it's better to go home, you live with your family. Even though you are poor, you just manage. It's okay, it's better than freedom. Because here we are living here without freedom. Like the experiences in the prison. In the prison, they lock people. Every day they beat us. They never give us food. They electrify people. They electrify people. So people that they are like it. I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I don't I don't know what you people are taking the blacks for. I don't know what you people are enjoying watching the blacks lose their life in the Mediterranean. Watching series of deaths go on and not saying a word. Now so many have demanded to go back home but you wanna Rather supporting the ones coming to die in the Mediterranean, risking their life, rather than finding a means of providing the transportation for those going home. If you really are capable, if you can board a ship, if you can rent a ship for people, that want to cross the Mediterranean Sea, that want to still risk their life. Why won't you be able to bring a plane for those that want to go home? Or rather not, why won't you be able to bring a plane for them that want to still go to Europe and come and bring a plane to Libya and take people down to Europe? Let, let's go straight into that because it, it seems to me that this has become a, an overriding passion and focus for you these days. Tell me about your, your, the documentaries you've made and are working on and, and what's driven you to, to be so focused on Libya and the situation there. Yeah, uh, so after I decided to move back uh, to my country, I, I realized that uh, things have changed, of course, in these last 10 years and especially regarding migration. Because the numbers of the migrants uh, from Africa to Europe, therefore we can say mostly to Italy, uh, especially after 2011 increased a lot, and in 2015, 16, 17 were really huge numbers. And uh, also the methods uh, through which the migrants used to cross or to try to cross the Mediterranean Sea 
changed in the last years because since uh, five, six years now, we can say that almost always um, the, the African migrants from Libya are trying to cross the sea uh, with the rubber boats. And uh, this means that these dinghies are not able, are not capable to reach alone the Italian coasts. And if no rescue ships or any other uh, cargo ships, for example, find them in, uh, uh, in the sea, they, they, they suddenly uh, sink. And uh, after they cover neither <coughs> half of the distance, therefore, I mean, there was something uh, or <coughs> already clear uh, from the first dialogues I had with uh, African migrants that were just landed in Italy, that the things have changed a lot. So I had this big uh, curiosity and, uh, and then uh, in a way I found, uh, by chance I can say, a way to uh, get in touch uh, with all those who connect to the internet from the Libyan soil. And uh, that is why I, once I had in my hands this uh, important tool, I, I thought that uh, this had to be the things uh, for me to do. In, uh, and so now we can say we are uh, um, just before uh, our final target, because uh, the documentary you were mentioning about is basically ready. So uh, I'm hopeful that I could uh, transfer all uh, the ex this experience two years long in this uh, documentary movie. So you, you said you've been you've been talking with these migrants, and it was mostly by chance that you had the opportunity to, to reach out to them. What? T tell me the background of that. How? Yeah. How did you? <clears throat> yeah, because uh, when I was uh, living abroad, I was trying to follow. Uh, of course, the, the news about my country from the internet, and I, it was even too easy for me to realize that all the reportage they made uh, from Libya, from the Libyan soil, were not particularly, particularly satisfied about them because it was clear that they were escorted, the journalists were escorted by the Libyan police and they could not exactly move freely in the country and even when they said they were making reportage from inside the detention centers it was clear that they were uh, in the detention centers just beside the uh, Libyan police so it was really almost impossible basically impossible to get a, a real picture of the country so that's why instead of reading the reportage I prefer to ask the African migrants that were just landed in Italy, and this happened in 2017-18, let's say, and uh, and in fact uh, it was surprising uh, what uh, came out from their stories, because for the first time uh, I heard in my life that in Libya they were largely practicing uh, slavery and also torture for for ransom. Uh, so this was shockful because, in fact, no media was talking about it. And uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I, it was shockful what they were telling me, and it was shockful that nobody was talking about it. So uh, at the beginning, I was quite confused because how to know exactly what is happening in Libya. So I, I just uh, tried to find a way to get in touch. To, with somebody in Libya, and that's why I'm saying by chance I found 
a method based on geolocalization that uh, allows me to get in touch uh, with all of all those who um, access to the internet from the Libyan soil. At that point, I could receive hundreds of uh, uh, direct stories, uh, which were not only uh, talking about something that happened before, like in the case of the migrants you can interview in Italy, but they were uh, uh, telling their own stories while it was happening. And some of them even could find a way to access to the internet from the detention centers, which is something that for me at the beginning was really impossible to believe, because if you are in a prison, how can you have access to internet and chat with me? So at the beginning I was not believing it, but we have to understand that the reality in Libya is so different, is so particular, that uh, some strange things can happen, and in a way, luckily, we can, uh, we can let them speak if we want. Because uh, the most important thing of this work, I think, uh, is that I could prove that the migrants themselves from uh, Libya can, be, can represent their own voice. They can be the protagonist of a self-storytelling, uh, and that should be important. Yeah, this this question of, of who's telling the story and, and what those stories are is really important to me. But I, I wonder if before we talk about that, there's maybe some context and some background that, that you can share with us. So, so why were African migrants going to Libya? And are they still going to Libya? And then what's the relationship between um, migrants coming then from Libya to Italy and to the rest of Europe? And can you talk about how this sort of connects with Europe's fraught relationship with uh, uh, migrants and the racism that, that comes along with, yes. with this kind yes. of global crisis. Yes, sure. Sure, I will try to make it short. Of course, uh, me as an Italian, uh, I use uh, to know a little about Libya because uh, it's a kind of uh, uh, neighbor country for us. And uh, so I have to say that the things started change after uh, Gaddafi fell because uh, until that point, of course, there were, for 10 years at least, there were migrants trying to cross the sea. In those times, they were crossing through, um, uh, thanks to um, wooden boats, they were fishermen boats, so they were perfectly able to reach the Italian coasts, and they were just a few thousands a year. Uh, after the, the, fell, the fall of Gaddafi, things changed because especially in, uh, in the area of Tripoli, of the capital, which is in the northwest of the country, on the sea, uh, the, the area was uh, uh, under the control of militias, armed groups that uh, started operating after the fall of Gaddafi. Uh, this started uh, a system of exploitation of the African migrants. We have to, to think that uh, when Gaddafi was still alive, Libya was one of the richest countries in Africa in those times. So many migrants from uh, the sub-Saharan uh, countries were going to Libya just to work for a couple of years, three, four years, and some of them they were coming back with uh, some money in their pockets and start something in their own countries. Uh, but uh, after Gaddafi uh, uh, died, um, the militias started a business on the migrants, thanks also to the African mafias. 
So basically, uh, the African mafias and the Libyans invested on the dreams of young African uh, guys and girls and to invite them to cross to Italy. And uh, this was, uh, um, most of the time, it was just a, a, a false promise because once they entered in Libya, they found themselves uh, uh, sold as slaves and, they, and many of them, they were even uh, tortured for extortion. It's, uh, for example, of course, it's very difficult to um, know how many migrants indeed passed through slavery, passed through uh, torture. But, for example, there are some researches made in Europe interviewing those who could cross the sea and, and, uh, and the, these researches say that at least 80% of the migrants that passed through Libya passed also through slavery and, uh, and torture for extortion. So uh, we have to understand that this is uh, because of the system and uh, I have to say that uh, most of the times the European media are still not uh, ready to understand the full, the full picture of what is happening in Libya because they just assume that Libya is a bad country from which to run away, but they don't understand the system which is at the base of this exploitation, uh, thanks to which we can today say that uh, Libya has become a free zone uh, of uh, exploitation of the black African. What, what's the state in Libya in terms of the rule of law and the role that the militias play? I think when, when we talked earlier, you, you, you mentioned that there was significant uh, regional power amongst militias and warlords. So how do they figure into this? Yeah, nowadays we have a government in Tripoli. Tripoli is still the capital of Libya. This government was formed in 2015, but in a way, not all the Libyans recognized this government because uh, after the elections, uh, uh, the parties could not form a majority. So they organized, after months, they organized an international meeting in Morocco, in, uh, in the place called Skirat. And from this international meeting, sponsored by the United Nations, they, they, they decided that uh, Sarraj would have been the, the, the prime minister. The first mission of this uh, uh, government uh, had to be to uh, unify the country. But, but after five uh, years, this mission has failed. It's failed completely because now we have uh, two uh, parts of Libya. The one in Tripoli, which is anyway in the hands of the militias, uh, militias who are supporting uh, the Prime Minister and Prime Minister, let's say, is hiding the black markets and all the things that the militias are doing on the ground to exploit both the migrants and the Libyans themselves. And on the east side of Libya and in the south of Libya, there is uh, the, uh, an, uh, the Libyan National Army, which is what remains of the old uh, Libyan army which now recognizes itself under a second parliament, which is based now in the east of the country. So, uh, after almost one year of war on the ground, the Libyan National Army was about to take Tripoli, the capital, last January, and to end the war. But uh, the international community decided for a ceasefire, but I have to say that in these uh, three, four months of uh, ceasefire, 
uh, were used by Turkey to transfer more and more soldiers from Turkey to Libya, uh, including uh, more than 15,000 uh, Syrian mercenaries, uh, not useful anymore for the war in Syria, were transferred by Turkey and employed, let's say, on the uh, Libyan war scenario. And uh, now, uh, not only Tripoli uh, is uh, well protected, but uh, uh, the Turkish army could uh, took a significant part of the country, and now they are heading to the, uh, to the east of the country. So in these same hours, in these same days, they are uh, fighting an important battle in the city of Sirte, in the, in the center of Libya. Well, I think, I think you answered it. it was really about the role of um, militias and the local warlords in terms of creating a, a, an environment or a climate where there was lack of rule of law, where the role of the police and the military was often directly in service of supporting this modern-day slave trade. Am I yeah. reading that right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we have some international invest investigations that uh, provide uh, us uh, um, some important points to understand. But at the same time, I have to say that uh, even uh, listening uh, to hundreds of uh, uh, migrants in Libya and also speaking with the Libyans in Libya in these last two years uh, allowed me to complete the picture in a way. So, uh, as I said, um, I, I, I think we can say the, the historical mission of the militias was to uh, smuggle the Libyan oil. Uh, because they got the, the main support from uh, in Europe and from Turkey uh, to be able to do whatever they want on the ground. And nobody protested if they, in the last five years they imposed their power uh, with the weapons on the ground. And so even the political charges had to, in a way, obey to the will of the militias. Uh, so, you know, uh, we can say that the Saraj government uh, served uh, to cover, to, to act as an umbrella for these militias because then uh, he comes to Rome, he goes to Paris, to London, to Berlin, and we think he is the, the prime minister of Libya. No, he is prime minister of uh, Tripoli, which is the capital, but is still not the whole country. And uh, by the way, we don't know what his own militias are doing on the, on the ground because nobody is able to tell this story, except those who are nowadays in Libya and can tell us through, through the internet. By the way, of course, it's a risky job, so I, I carefully protect always the identity of those who, who speak with me, but for example, they provide pictures, videos, so I mean, we have uh, enough proof to, to say what we are saying nowadays. So, the chief of the National Oil Corporation, which is the public uh, institution in Libya in charge to, uh, to take care of the sale of the Libyan oil, uh, uh, one year ago um, said, uh, stated that uh, um, around 40% of the Libyan oil have, has been smuggled by the militia in the last years which is, of course, a huge amount of money, something like uh, $350 billion per year. So, um, it, this means that uh, the impunity that the militias are 
um, enjoying on the ground serves primarily to smuggle this oil because there is not, no authority above them that can stop this trade. And who are those who are enjoying this smuggling? Exactly Europe and Turkey. We have already investigations, they already reported that things are, these things are already proved. We just know, uh, I mean, some people already are in jail for this uh, smuggling. Of course, this smuggling is involving also the mafia, both in Malta and in Sicily. Still, the scandal is not uh, big enough because uh, uh, those who were convicted until now were just little fishes, let's say. But at the same time, we know from the chief of uh, NOC in Libya that 40% of the Libyan oil have been smuggled. So where is gone? So th that's the question. It should have followed the same channels uh, to Europe and to Turkey. So once the militias enjoyed this impunity on the ground, they thought to get some more money even through the exploitation of the migrants, because at that point nobody could stop them. And so they thought to, do, to exploit migrants through slavery, which is unpaid forced labor. It means people work and find uh, at the end they are not paid. So they work without salary, and the other is the torture for extortion, which which can seem something really um, not describable, but which which is a quite common thing in Libya. So it means that uh, the migrants are in the hands of bandits or militias. They uh, the militia uh, torture the migrants while calling the family of the migrants back at their place, and uh, they. They make them hear the voice, the screaming of uh, their son or daughter, and they say, look, uh, we are torturing your son. If you will not send uh, money, uh, we will torture him to death. And normally, they ask uh, four, five thousand dollars, not so much, but for African families, sometimes it's really hard to cover these expenses. Then we have to say, because here in Europe, we still uh, think that uh, Libya is... Uh, a place where uh, uh, of transit for migrants, but it's still, it's not uh, like that anymore because uh, the UNHCR uh, says that uh, around 700,000 African migrants are currently in Libya, but in the last year only 5,000 could reach Europe through the sea. So it means uh, one every 140 migrants. So we have to start thinking of, as, um, of Libya not as a place of transit, but as an open prison where the migrants are, in, are trapped since years. In fact, it's important to note that uh, in the last two years, it, it really seems that uh, those who decided to, to enter Libya, the number decreased. Because uh, uh, in the African countries now it became famous that Libya is not a place to, to be. That's thanks to uh, the, the tens of thousands of, of migrants that from Libya decided to go home and to be repatriated. So once home, back home, they started associations to, to inform the, the young guys that if they want to migrate anywhere but uh, Libya. So it sounds like word has gotten out that Libya is not not the place that the traffickers claimed it would be for people, and yet we've got almost seven hundred thousand people who had traveled to Libya who are now uh, imprisoned or enslaved there. 
Uh, going back to something we talked about a little bit earlier, I mean, having seen a little bit of your work and, and read some of your writing, one of the things I'm struck by, and you alluded to this, is the role that letting people themselves tell their own stories. Um, so I hear in, your, in, in, your, in the documentaries I've seen of yours less in the way of things like overarching uh, third-person narrative or, or uh, voiceover, and instead you dive right into to letting people who have experienced this tell their stories. Do you want, do you want to first, I'm, I'm putting you in a position where you now have to represent other people's stories, but can you talk through some of what you heard about what life is like in these, in these prison camps or, or in other cases and, and what going through torture was like for, for these people and then what you've done maybe creatively as a filmmaker to make those voices yeah, yeah. Real and direct. Yeah, in fact, you know, in a way, it was a, a, an interesting experience to try to figure out the place through the voice messages that I was receiving. Because sometimes, as I said, it was really difficult to imagine uh, what they were talking about. Uh, we, were, we were mentioning about the fact that most of them they have access to the internet from the detention center. So how can we explain this? Uh, so of course I asked them many times, so they said, look, this is not a normal prison, it's not a state prison, it's just a compound, a big place where they used to stuff uh, migrants as they are uh, animals. And so in the chaos, it's even easy to uh, sneak a, a telephone. And, and at a certain point, they even don't mind because there's nowhere you can go anyway, anyway and there is nobody who can save you. Because, uh, as I said, the, the, the control of the territory is militarily in the hands of the militias. For example, uh, the Interpol, which is the international police of Europe, already has a list of tens of uh, criminals and uh, human traffickers in Libya, but in the last years they could not touch one of them. And uh, still, in Europe they say that uh, they should push, they should convince the government uh, and the Libyan police to work better. But for those who understand how the situation really works in Libya, it's easy to understand that these criminals will, will be never uh, caught by any police because they are the real authority in, uh, in Libya. And so the day uh, when the government will arrest one of them, uh, that will be the last day of the same government. So we have to imagine of Libya like a, a South American uh, drug cartel in a way, which is also a state and which is recognized internationally as a state. So, yeah, so it was um, a, a, an interesting experience to uh, listen to a reality which is very far, and it was uh, sometimes scary because it was not always possible to believe all the stories they were talking about uh, at the beginning, but after they, they, they could manage to send me videos or pictures, uh, well, I had to acknowledge that uh, they were saying the truth. And how they could how they could send videos just because sometimes these uh, uh, criminals, these Libyan criminals, feel so confident of what they are doing, and they feel so protected that they even start uh, um, shooting uh, the tortures. 
and one day make uh, videos they share the videos to each other and uh, some of these videos uh, reached the, the the phones of the migrants somehow some way and so the migrants sent to me so we have uh, many many videos of tortures and uh, especially listening to the dialogues while the torture is happening you understand what's going on in the scene right. because it's always uh, difficult to find the reason why somebody should have been tortured right but when you listen to the a Libyan criminal, which is repeating, when are you sending the money? Send the money. If you don't send the money, I will not stop. And the guy answering, okay, now I call my family, I swear they will send the money, I swear. Then you understand what system is behind. Yeah. So speaking of this kind of confidence, did you ever find yourself doubting what you were doing? And especially what kind of risk you might be placing the migrants themselves in by telling you their stories or how did you how did you address that yeah i, I moved very slowly especially at the beginning about it i never revealed any identity of those who spoke with me but at the same time you know for the things they were saying and even for some noise background noise it was uh, clear that they were speaking from uh, from libya and uh, on one side but at the same time i have to say that i'm in touch with them so through the geolocalization the only sure thing 100% is that they are talking from libya but at the same time it was hard to make the the people be, uh, here in europe believe what they were saying that's why slowly uh, we managed to get also photos and uh, and videos so it took a while, especially at the beginning, to understand what was the mechanism and what were the risks they could run. And then uh, I've been always extremely careful to protect the identity of all the people they spoke. For example, uh, in some cases, of course, we published uh, videos uh, just by blurring the, the face of, uh, of the people, but for the rest it was clear they were in Libya. And how, how, what kinds of, I mean, was it, was it technologies that we're familiar with, like, like WhatsApp or things like that, that you were using to reach out to these migrants? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. all the social media that the, the whole world knows, the same are used by the migrants in, uh, in Libya. This is amazing. Of course, uh, two years ago, uh, before fighting this way, I, I could not imagine that the majority of the migrants in Libya could have access to internet the internet but in fact it is like this and so not only those in the detention centers but those who are outside normally easily can manage to have a mobile phone and they are young people as uh, all the young people in the world of course they don't come from uh, from another world they belong to this world to, to, to this world so sometimes i have to say they they are able to use the social media even better than the europeans for because for them it's a matter of life and to be connected through the socials, it means to know what's happening around, to be in touch with the family, to be in touch with their friends who are also in Libya but in another place, so to share information. And that's why this network developed a lot in the migrant community in Libya. airplane they throw us two missiles so one 180 was died uh, and uh, others were injured 
so uh, the t- two rooms were uh, were now uh, kicked. Two rooms, the two rooms now all are finished. Okay, so the all uh, migrants now are, uh, are sitting inside. There's no there's no room. So uh, the two uh, airplanes uh, throw us two missiles. So now we are uh, sitting outside uh, the rooms because there's no rooms. Two rooms were finished. Right. Can can you paint a picture of what daily life in one of these detention centers is like based on the stories you've heard? No, look, uh, in the detention centers, uh, life is uh, in a way always uh, the same because... Uh, uh, there's not even enough uh, place to lay down on the floor, so they are stuffed uh, one over the other, and uh, they used to, to feed them, but uh, just a little bit, just enough water to survive. And then, of course, it depends, because uh, um, the inter- even in the media internationally used to divide the, the so-called official detention centers and the unofficial detention centers. So the official detention centers normally should have uh, uh, should be uh, followed by the the, go- the institutions of uh, of Tripoli. But even in these cases, we know that, uh, for example, uh, some uh, uh, policemen, or I don't know if we should call them policemen or simply criminals, uh, they used to to practice the torture even in the official detention centers or they sell people to others because the real bandits, the real human traffickers are outside. So they used to contact the detention centers and to buy people from the detention centers. While if they, um, they are in the unofficial detention centers, then uh, over there is very critical because they maybe they, they will not even stay uh, for a long time or the family sends money and so they are released or they, they are killed, basically killed. But for the rest, they, they just stay there and waiting for something to happen, but, uh, but nothing happens all the day. So they are just there one over the other. And of course, it's also psychologically very difficult. And uh, many times they told me about stories of people who simply could not bear the situation anymore, so they started shouting and they started losing control. So we have to think that uh, all of these people now are in these conditions uh, uh, since uh, a few years. So the, now it's mentally very difficult for them to continue in this situation. Did you hear a sense of hope or, or anything to keep people going in these stories? No, actually not. I mean, uh, it happened. Uh, I mean, those uh, really hopeful uh, I, I I could speak with were those who finally decided to go home. And even for them, it's not easy because uh, those who want to go home are more than the places on the flights that the IOM uh, is providing for, for uh, voluntary uh, repatriation. Uh, so it means in the last uh, three years, around uh, 60,000 uh, people were repatriated through flights from Tripoli to the main capitals of the African countries. So uh, it happened uh, many times to follow the stories of those who were going back. So uh, I remember when uh, I could speak with them just a couple of days before the flight, they were extremely happy to leave that hell. 
but for all the others, uh, those who, for example, they cannot go home because they come from Somalia or from other countries where, where there is a war, and uh, so they have uh, no alternative, for them uh, it's very difficult to have hope. Uh, it's true that the UNHCR managed to uh, evacuate a few thousands of them, some directly to Europe, some temporarily to Niger and also to Rwanda, just to find a place, whatever place out of Libya, that would be uh, uh, good enough for those people just to escape from Libya. But of course, I mean, the activity of the UNHCR is subjected to the will of the government, to, which is subjected to the will of the militias. So they don't let them evacuate many people, just a few thousand out of uh, 60,000 who are the refugees, who those who really deserve uh, a refugee status and therefore a place in the world to be. For all the others, very hopeless. I mean, uh, we, it's, just, it's like we are just pushing them to risk life on the rubber boats, not as a way to come to Europe, but simply as a way to leave Libya. And, and how, does it, how does somebody get repatriated? It doesn't sound like you could just decide to leave if you're in a detention center. So what, what's that process from what you hear? Well, well, it happens sometimes that um, the IOM could even visit the detention center asking if anybody wanted to go home. And it happened that they repatriated people, taking them out from the detention centers. Of course, we are talking about the official detention centers. But sometimes uh, those who are outside the detention centers, uh, and they have the chance to contact or even to go to the office of the IOM, they simply registered. Sometimes even the, their own embassies in Tripoli can help. So they have a list of names, and this is a special program. So they don't pay for these flights, are provided by the, by the IOM just as a emergency flights. So they, they, they have the right to get a flight. Unfortunately, as I said, the number of those who are asking to go back is um, more than the flights which are offered. Therefore, there are cases of corruptions. So the flights should be free. But if they don't pay the, the worker in, the, in their own embassy, they, they don't get the flight or they can wait even a year before being repatriated. Please, we need the app to just help us to go back to our, comp to our country. We go to the embassy, we want to go, they say the flight is coming. Past four months now, I've registered. We don't see anything. This country is very, it's, it's not a good country for us. Please, we just need to go back to our country. I tried uh, all my best, honestly, to highlight uh, this, uh, this story here in Europe because uh, uh, here in Europe it's basically not possible to tell the story that people, that, that there are at least some people in Libya who, who want to go home because they all uh, uh, stuck in the idea that they just want to go to, to come to Europe or, or, or better to die. It's not like that for uh, for thousands and thousands of people that were just abandoned in Libya while it would have been, let's say, easy to, to rescue them from the country and uh, take them back home. It seems to me that this is part of the racism in Europe around migrancy is the idea that 
coming to Italy would be so appealing and that wherever somebody's coming from is so dreadful that, 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 that there's a willingness to take these risks to, you know, potentially be enslaved, this kind of thing. So you're starting to get that story that it's much more complex than that. Well, out. well you, are, you are perfectly, uh, perfectly right. But as I mentioned, uh, when I moved back to Italy two days ago, I found that the debate here in Italy was... Uh, pretty different uh, compared to the one uh, I was used to when I was still in the country. Because uh, the, the society here in Italy is uh, much uh, polarized. On one side, we have the right uh, parties, and uh, they, they want to close the border. They would even sink the migrants in the middle of the, of the sea. Uh, but uh, on the other side, uh, there is also another polarized uh, a group of people who are uh, who think to support the migrants by rescuing them in the sea but uh, surprisingly i have uh, i have to say that i noticed how much this uh, rhetoric we can say is not able to describe what is the real situation in libya and therefore is not able to offer real solutions for those in libya as i said in the last year, just one migrant on 140 from Libya could reach Europe. So, uh, while I, I, I started uh, suspecting that when we focus only on those who are rescued in the middle of the sea, is a way not to put our nose in Libya, not to know what is happening in Libya, not to know what should be necessary to do concretely in order to save all those who are in Libya. But I don't know, you know, uh, any time when in a debate the two parts are uh, much polarized, it's very difficult to make, uh, to make any kind of debate. So these uh, NGOs who are uh, rescuing uh, uh, people in the sea, they used to say, uh, we must be in the sea to, to rescue them and not to leave anybody behind. But the numbers say completely another story. Uh, um, so it's very difficult nowadays. Of course, it's very challenging for me as a director to try to tell a story that uh, uh, seemingly nobody wants to hear. And uh, so let's see what will happen. Well, you, you led me right to the next question I wanted to ask, which is to to go back to the, the technique of telling these very fraught and often marginalized stories. So you're, you're getting... Um, Sounds like initially maybe some text messages or some voice voicemail, voice recordings. Eventually pictures started trickling out and maybe low resolution cell phone video. You're a filmmaker. How how are you taking taking this incredibly difficult story from all these fragments and trying to turn them into the, the documentary you're working on? Yeah, well, the documentary is made also by the videos I have received from uh, Libya, of course, as I said, sometimes the people speak uh, and I ha had to blur their face, but sometimes, for example, um, I have some videos who were recorded by some who are outside Libya currently. So in this case, I will be able to publish even their, their own face because I have the permission to do that. And uh, otherwise, they used to be the reporters. I mean, they just open uh, the phone and they record whatever is happening around them. And this was made not only by, by migrants, but also by Libyans, just to show me how things really work uh, uh, over there. So we could, it, it, it's, it seems 
absurd, but we received even uh, videos, footages from uh, inside the detention centers made by migrants. In these places I described, that's why I can describe them very well, because uh, I have many uh, videos of them in these big uh, compounds, uh, sitting on, uh, on the floor and uh, talking to each other with a lot of uh, voices and noise coming from the background. So these are the pictures. And very interesting, well, of course, interesting in a way, are the videos made by the criminals. Because in that case, we have the point of view of the criminals. And, we ha and me as a director, when I decided to use these footages, I have to think that uh, the point of view is, is the point of view of the criminal. And I have to think why the criminal is doing that video in that moment and i have to I have to try to explain what is the situation because otherwise i would uh, consider them almost pornography you know because to to, to see a, a man being tortured is not something you can entertain with so uh, for example i used it to to show just uh, a few seconds of the scene and then cut the video and continue with the audio because I think that what the criminals are saying to the, to the migrant under torture is more important than the, the, the footage itself. Is it a film by Michelangelo Severini, or does it end up becoming a film by all of the people who are living this? And then how do you navigate the decisions you have to make as a director? So the movie, as I said, is based on the real stories and on the real messages that were sent to me from Libya, both when they are videos or when they are just voice messages. And I, I always repeat that in this case we are in, in the face of a self-narration. And um, I mean, now we are talking about the movie, but since two years now, I'm running also the uh, radio programs. So what I'm doing is to let the migrants uh, uh, describe themselves and to narrate themselves what is the situation, their own story, which is something, I have to say, quite unique at the moment. But at the same time, the movie is a movie made by, by me in the sense that I even didn't try to represent themselves. This is the movie they will do by themselves when they will uh, have the idea or the time or the will or the chance to collect enough videos, they, they will do their own movie. I, I can't forget that I am Italian and I have this point of view, so I prefer to have a character in the movie um, and to tell the story of the reaction of this European guy in front of these stories, in front of these voice messages, in front of these videos. Because in a, otherwise, you know, I, I was afraid to make a video which is so unbelievable in a way for what you hear, for what you see, that um, the watcher can consider something bad, of course, some, something that should not happen, but so far away. But by showing the, the reaction of a simple uh, European citizen, uh, which is the character inside the documentary, uh, I want to show the fact that, uh, uh, I mean, we are, in, in, we are inside the story. We, we don't belong to a different story. We are part of the story. We are responsible for what is happening. And it's absolutely normal 
that uh, some people who has been tortured in a country which is just on the other side of the sea uh, from Italy uh, try to connect uh, with me through the internet in 2020. It's something uh, uh, which is what is, should be normal currently and I want also to show that uh, it's impossible that somebody uh, could think that what was happening in Libya would have been hidden inside the country. Nowadays with the internet nothing can happen in the world that cannot be shown to the rest of the world. So uh, I think it was important to, to uh, represent also the, my point of view and, uh, and the reaction that uh, we as Europeans have to, um, to produce after um, being aware of, uh, of these stories. So when we were first talking, getting to know each other, I asked you a question and your response to it stuck with me. And I, I don't know if I'm quite representing it right, but I asked you about your background and what motivated you to, to take on this very difficult story. Um, and, you know, I was interested in your biography and your background as, a, as an artist and a musician. And your response at the time was really interesting. You, you basically said, no, the thing is, I'm just being a citizen. And so I have to do this. I wonder if you could talk more about your idea of citizenship and what kinds of responsibilities you feel that that means you have to carry out. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, anybody is different. I always uh, felt uh, the, the idea to be a citizen as, a, 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 in a way, uh, as being responsible of what is happening uh, around me in my society but uh, at a certain point of my life when I was pretty young I realized that it's more interesting uh, even what is happening outside my society because from Europe for example I used to travel when I was uh, studying in the university those times I was traveling in the former Yugoslavia just out from the war then I traveled in North Africa in the Middle East uh, I have lived uh, six years in Turkey so I was always interested in understanding what was happening outside my own society to see which are the connections and uh, to see if uh, our lifestyle is still uh, acceptable, I mean, is still sustainable, you know, uh, with, uh, with the life and uh, with the respect of uh, the dignity of the life of other people. Unfortunately, I was always disappointed any time I, I made this travel, and uh, that's why I, I used to, to perceive my work like this, especially when I, I am a filmmaker, because... Uh, so I think uh, my work is to tell story. Uh, but I also know that uh, while telling stories, we can show some part of the reality which are uh, normally hidden. So, I, um, I, for example, I don't uh, consider myself a journalist, uh, so I'm still a storyteller, so, but I like to uh, tell stories which, in a way, uh, describe the relation between this in and out, this us and them. Because, uh, you know, at the same time uh, here, uh, um, it's true, we can say we are uh, Europeans and those are Africans, or we can say we are white, they are blacks, or we can say we are Christian, they are Muslims, but at the same time, we share the same Mediterranean Sea. 
that for me as an Italian is something very important. So I cannot avoid to consider those people in North Africa as uh, brothers because uh, we, uh, in a way, belong to the same seaside, to the same culture, to the same food, to the same lifestyle also. So and history also put us together a lot of times. So uh, I I I can't not I cannot accept that. Uh, uh, we are building uh, walls and defend our interests uh, uh, on the skin of our brothers just a few sea miles away from here. There's a tendency that I think some people feel to take hopeless stories like, like the one you're telling and feel hopeless and feel, as a result, powerless, disengaged. This is so much bigger than me. What could I possibly do? Do you have... Do you have a counterpoint to that? What What do you want pe- people to do with, with the film when they see it and afterwards? Well, I can tell you that the movie, in a way, hands with a bigger feeling of frustration. But uh, in fact, uh, I don't think that uh, um, my duty is the one to change things, because I'm just a filmmaker. But of course, I can show a different picture. I can try to make people understand which is the correct picture on the, uh, about the situation, which are the real actors on, on, in the game, what are their, their role, who is doing what. Then once I can uh, provide a different picture to the people, then you know it's something that should raise in, in the consciousness of the people. Uh, I mean, I'm not a guru, I I don't think I can uh, move or change the mind of the people just because, uh, I don't know of what, of my charisma or what, no, I can can just tell a different story, I can just provide correct information to the people, and then I used to say that uh, I I consider myself happy when I succeed in uh, making people think twice. In this case, uh, maybe I'm uh, even asking more than think twice because uh, I have the chance to really tell a completely different story. More than this, I I cannot do, and so anytime I feel frustrated, I I I go back thinking that uh, at the end I'm a limited man, so I can uh, I'm not able, of course, to change the history, and I'm just trying to do my best. So where are you at in, in the film, um, and, and what are the next steps? So the, the movie is finished. We just, send, uh, we just applied uh, to a few festivals. Uh, if, I can, if I may mention, we applied also to the Toronto Film Festival, and so we are waiting the, for the answer that should come in a few weeks. I'm, I'm feeling very confident because uh, I think the, the, the movie finally was a very good job by all those who supported me and all those who uh, worked with me both in Italy and in Tunisia where also the most the movie was shot talking about uh, our shootings of course then we have uh, the material that was made by uh, by the migrants from Libya so I, I just hope I really hope that uh, there will be no political influence to prevent the, the movie to be screened in the festivals I, I hope it won't it, I think it won't happen in, uh, in, in Canada but uh, of course we applied also to different countries and honestly I have to say that the positions who are 
explained in the movie nowadays currently in Italy are out of the media completely because uh, in, uh, in this situation, in this war, uh, fought in uh, Libya, officially the Italian government is on the position of the uh, government in Tripoli. So it's not possible to criticize. Last week the Italian government renewed the agreements with the government in Tripoli saying that with this money the Libyan institutions will improve the conditions of the migrants in Libya. But I had a program on the radio yesterday from a guy talking from the detention centers and he said we don't see anybody from the UNHCR since three months. So how can they improve the situations if they even don't come here? So unfortunately, these stories are uh, quite uncomfortable for the, the European governments. So uh, I guess it won't be easy to, to promote the, this movie in Europe and especially in Italy. I really hope we'll have the chance to see the film here in Toronto and, and I hope everything goes well there. You're, you're clearly not done with this story. Um, you, you mentioned to me before the beginning of this that you are off to Tunisia shortly to continue. So what, what's next? Well, uh, the next, honestly, I'm uh, very curious to see what happens with the movie because I cannot hide that uh, we are hopeful that uh, this could be a tool to open uh, some spaces in, in the debate. Uh, also because, you know, this is a, a difficult picture to understand if you don't see it as a wall. And sometimes when uh, you have uh, radio, uh, radio programs, yes, people can follow or even articles, but it's, you know, they always catch some parts and uh, just once you are able to, to have it, the wall picture, then you realize how, as I was saying, how to relocate the, the different actors on, on the playground, play table. So uh, we are confident that this movie could help to highlight all this story uh, about uh, the project Exodus. And honestly, there are some, a couple of more projects uh, coming out after the movie, which is a book uh, that will be published in Italy. And also we are uh, about to produce a TV series uh, always on this story, but uh, more than uh, what I can do or what I can publish, I hope that this uh, movie will produce an effect, a at least in the debate, in the, the public debate. Uh, then we know that we are dealing with very big interests and it will be very difficult to impact uh, at that uh, level, uh, let's say. But at least to open the debate, because the hypocrisy of the European debate is not... Uh, uh, bearable anymore and so it's time that uh, people in Europe realize what uh, what has been happening in Libya in the last uh, years. Is there anything, any questions I haven't asked or things you think we should talk about that, that we've missed? No, no. I feel uh, I feel satisfied. I guess you touched the, the the main points. That's great. And thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. Yeah, I know it's you. late there. Thank you for giving me the chance to speak once more about these things. And uh, I, I'm happy anyway that uh, this can be told uh, even uh, on the other side of the ocean. I'll be following your work closely. You can find out more about the project on its Facebook page at Exodus Escape from Libya or on Vimeo at vimeo.com slash exodus libya.
I'm no expert on Italian wines, but I think Sicilian wines, since Southern yeah. Italian wines Great. are fantastic look i i i took a bottle two days ago which is strange for me also a very good white wine bottle i paid it produced here here around i paid one euro oh wow around one dollar but you can't imagine this here is a paradise really it was episode 13 trapped in libya we want to thank michelangelo for accepting our invitation and calling for hosting this episode Marshall Bureau composed all tracks in this episode. We appreciate the continued support of the Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Please check out our website, quantization.ca, for more episodes and full transcripts, and come back for upcoming episodes. Podcast.